At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a culture filled with promises for a better life, deeper satisfaction, and greater purpose, but how do we know which is right? We invite you to join us for Smoke and Mirrors, deciphering truth in a world of truths, where we'll look to Scripture to expose the illusions of our culture, and together, hold fast to a better answer, God's. Uh, Well, if you have your Bible this morning, let me invite you to open it up to the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, Ecclesiastes is right in the middle of the Bible, if you're unfamiliar with it, so you just kind of open in the middle and you're pretty close to it uh, there. There's a Bible in the chair in front of you if you need one of those. We'll have the text of uh, the scripture on the screen for you as well. If you have uh, your phone and a Bible app or something like that, it should be fairly easy to find as well. We're in this series called Smoke and Mirrors, and I'm going to read for us our, our passage today, which is Ecclesiastes 2. Uh, verses 18 to 26. So would you stand with me and let me uh, read God's word for us this morning, uh, for us today. The preacher says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. It's also his vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow. And his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the busyness of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that this is your word. You are speaking here to us today. And so we ask, Father, that as we examine our lives and as we look at our identities and where we place our worship and our devotion, Uh, Lord, that you would show us the way in which to walk and to live. By your spirit, would you you disconnect our hearts from our, our idolatry of our work? Would you help us to see your glory? And would you help us to pursue the kingdom of God and the righteousness of Christ first and foremost? Give us grace now as we hear Spirit of God, take your word and press it upon our hearts, change us, mold us into the image of Christ. Help me as your your messenger, as your ambassador to proclaim Christ well, work in my weakness, give my mind clarity, and let us hear well your voice today that we might change and grow and be more and more like Christ. We ask this humbly and for your glory, together we pray, amen. Well, do you worship your work? Are you a worshiper 
of your job. Now, I know that that question might seem a little shocking, maybe staggering. Perhaps you're going, whoa, 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 worshiping my work? Do you know my job? Like, <laughs> not at all. You might, you might feel that's a little absurd even to consider your work being something you worship. But let me, let me just give you a definition of worship, and, and then let's see if maybe perhaps you are worshiping your work. Uh, this is just from the Oxford English Dictionary. Worship is the extravagant respect or admiration for, or devotion to an object of esteem. Let me, let me press in again there and just say it again. Worship is an extravagant respect, or an admiration for, or a devotion to an object of esteem. Do you esteem your career, your vocation, your calling so highly that you devote yourself extremely to it, you respect it, Beyond everything else, you admire what you do. Could you be someone who is worshiping your work? In, in February of last year, right before the pandemic hit, a staff writer at The Atlantic, a, a large uh, national publication, Derek Thompson, he wrote an article about how America and Americans, us, we are worshiping our work. And, and he pointed out a couple interesting data points that I think are helpful for us to demonstrate the trend of Americans worshiping our work. Uh, one point, he said that no large country in the world, as productive as the United States, averages more hours of work a year. Get that? No large country in the world as productive. So just imagine examining countries like us in our productivity, we average more hours of work in a year than any other country. Furthermore, he quotes Samuel P. Hutchinson in his book, Who Are We? to the Challenges of Americans' National Identity. And he states that Americans work longer hours, have shorter vacations, get less in unemployment, disability, and retirement benefits, and they retire later than people in comparably rich societies. If you think about the affluence that our society has, yet Americans work longer, shorter vacations, later retirement than people in other societies with comparable wealth to ours. Third data point, a Pew Research study on the epidemic of youth anxiety. It recorded in a survey that 95% of teens, so 95 out of 100 teenagers, said the biggest priority to them as they grow up is having a job or career that they enjoy. 95% said that. It is extremely or very important to them as they become an adult. They ranked this higher than any other priority on the list, including, and here's some of the other ones that were on there, including helping other people who are in need. They ranked having a job is more important than that. Or even getting married, only 47% said that was a high or extremely high priority, which means that finding meaning at work beats family and kindness as the top ambition of America's young people today. Staggering. Furthermore, Thompson goes on to say that the rise of the professional class and corporate bureaucracies in the early 20th century created a modern journey of a career, a narrative arc bending towards a precious set of initials, VP, SVP, CEO, even CFO. The upshot, he says, is that for today's workist, anything short of finding one's vocational soulmate means a wasted life. Let me say that one more time. Anything short, for Americans today, anything short of finding one's vocational soulmate, your career soulmate, 
means if you haven't found that, you've wasted your life. That's how we examine and think about our work and our lives and our identities. We worship our work. We see it as giving us definition and identity and meaning and filling us with value. And it's no mistake here, work is part of the secular dream. Finding your identity in your career, it's become what is most important among us. It's part of the human-focused aim of finding meaning and value for us in this life. Now, we're in this series called Smoke and Mirrors, and we've been, we've been studying, we've been on this journey to discover if secularism, and I've defined secularism this way, it's the finding of all the resources that we can, that we need, all the resources that we need in this life for meaning, for fulfillment, for morality, for working for justice, all the resources that we need, we find in purely human, this world resources. That's what secularism is. No God, no need for God. We've got life under control. We've got everything we need here on this earth, everything under the sun to give us meaning and purpose and value here today. That's where meaning comes from. That's what secularism is defined by. And this isn't a current modern problem. It's not like something that just came up in the last 200 years. Secularism has been around since the ancient of days. The the preacher here of Ecclesiastes, he is examining the secular dream. And he is asking the question, does it hold up? Does what secularism offer hold up as a means for us to find true purpose and value in life? And so as a, as, a good, as a good scientist, as a good researcher, he wants to go and do some experiments. He goes and, and leans in to find out if the tenets of secularism and what it offers really does provide meaning in life. We've been looking at these things over the last several weeks. So he explores naturalism, the idea that, that the physical world, that even science itself can provide us meaning and give us definition to our lives. And he's concluded, nope, it's empty. Naturalism doesn't provide it. He's looked at intellectualism, the idea that that meaning comes through acquiring knowledge and insight and storing up information and and even acquiring some degree of human wisdom. And again, intellectualism, nope, it doesn't add up. He's looked and examined the premise of hedonism, that this life, you only get one life. So live it up. Enjoy everything you can. Find all the pleasures that you can enjoy, whether it be in wealth or or pleasure or sex or whatever it is. Find all the joy you can in life. Get every ounce of happiness out of life because that's where you'll find meaning. And again, he's examined it. He's experimented with it. And he says, no, it didn't provide what I was looking for. He looked at individualism, that you create your own destiny, you create your own adventure, and meaning comes from within. You as a self-autonomous person, you define what is meaning for life, and you, you make your own happiness. And again, looking at individualism, he said, no, it's empty as well. We can't find meaning in and of our own selves. And so he comes to one more experiment this week that we're looking at. It's the experiment of workism. Does our work, does worshiping our work, truly give us validation and meaning and importance in life? Are we what we do? And if we are what we do, if we build a legacy in our labor and from our calling, perhaps there we will find the value in life as it is. Now, I want to play all my cards at the front end of this because you feel it, I feel it. We're all sitting here, I think we're all sitting here answering the question going, are you kidding? 
Like, my job is not that great. <laughs> I don't feel like I find value in my work. I don't see meaning there. And, and we're really asking the question, why does it feel, why does my hard work feel so futile? I mean, why does it come up so empty? Why is that how I, I experience life? Again, it's not a modern problem. Uh, Tolstoy, the Russian writer and Christian and philosopher, he, he examined this as well. He said this in his book, Confessions. He says, my question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide was the simplest of questions. It's lying in the soul of every man, a question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? This question is really the question of the midlife crisis. What am I doing? Does it have any value? Does it have any meaning? Why does my hard work feel so futile? The whole story raises the question. Secularism answers and says, find your identity, find your purpose, find your meaning in life in what you do. Worship your job. Climb the corporate ladder. Get to the top. If you get there, you will be someone great. You will be accomplished. You will have found purpose in your life. If you just live out mediocrity, you've wasted it. You've wasted your life, and it's empty. But if, if we're honest, I think we would... We would find and we would experience and we would say, we lay awake at night and we feel, we feel empty. The preacher here has the answer. And he, in experimenting with workism, he, he concludes, he comes back to us, he, he acknowledges yes. If you are looking for purpose and value and meaning in your life from your work, from your career, from your, your calling, guess what? It's empty. It's vain. It's a chasing after the wind. And he shows us why. Now, he shows us these things why, not for us to quit our jobs and just say, well, hey, it's all dumb anyway. I don't need to work. He shows us these things to give us a sense of we should be very careful not to put our identity or to find purpose and value in our work, but to see work in its right place. And so as he experiments, as he thinks, he's going to give us three reasons why workism, why worshiping our work is really an empty religion. It's a false gospel. Let me show us these things here. First of all, he says, one reason that workism, worshiping our work is empty is because the next generation, whoever comes behind us, could erase everything we work so hard for. We don't have control on what happens next with what we've worked so hard for. It could all just evaporate immediately. Look with me at verses 18 and 19. So he says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. And you might think that this is some, like, some depressed guy that's just like, he's just having a bad day at work. Maybe he needs to find a better job. I mean, he's just like, he's just not in a good fit for his calling. Maybe he doesn't know what to do at his job. He's just like really spinning his wheels in the wrong place. And you're like, come on, man, find the better calling, find the better career. But it, what if we remember the, the preacher here is is posturing himself, it may be Solomon, but he's posturing himself at least as if he is Solomon. What was Solomon's job? He was the king. He had everything the best he could. I mean, he spoke and it happened. The king says and he declared. I mean, think about how easy that would be. How would you like it at your job if you say, hey, this is how it's going to go, and you just tell people and they do it? 
Like, they don't get to talk back. They don't get to put in their own experience or say, hey, like, you say, hey, build the wall, they build the wall. You know, it's just, it happens. That's his job. He's got all the resources in the world, all the wealth in the world, all the wisdom in the world, and here's what he's saying about it. I hate it all. I hate my job. I hate my toil in which I toil under the sun. And here's why he hates it. Here's why it's so frustrating to him. Not because it's a bad job, but because he sees the result and he goes, I don't get it. I hate it be all. I, I, I'm frustrated by it because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Well, Solomon, that's not very nice. Your kids are going to get this, right? They're going to have the inheritance. Your sons, they're going to pick it up. But that's not his concern so much as what they will do with it. Verse 19, and who knows? I love this, just kind of sarcasm in there. Who knows? Like, are you raising your kids? I don't know. But he says, who knows whether he, the one who gets it after me, will be wise or a fool? No clue. Yet, he will be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. And this is vanity. Like, I worked so hard, I labored, I saved, I acquired wealth, I built the, I built the palaces, I built, the, I built everything, it's great, I've united the kingdom, and I don't know if my kid who's going to get all this stuff is going to be a lunkhead and waste it all away. I have no clue if they're going to be able to do wisely with it, and it's out of his control. That's the frustrating thing. I've labored hard, I've used my wisdom, and yet whoever gets it next, they're the master of it. Here, Solomon recognizes that he has to leave everything behind. You, you don't get a U-Haul to follow your hearse with you of all your stuff and everything you've acquired. You can't take it with you. And his problem is that in his hard work and his amassed wealth, it's completely out of his hands on who, how the next generation will use it. Will they be wise? Will they, will they continue to labor well with it? Will they grow it, enhance it? Or, or will they be foolish and squander it, and the legacy just evaporates away? Cornelius Vanderbilt, a 19th century American railroad tycoon, he's a great example of this. He started out with $100, $100 to his name, and by his death in 1877, he was the richest American. He built an empire. His son, William, after Cornelius died, his son, William, it all went to him. William took what he had been given, and he actually doubled the family fortune. So generation two, hey, does a pretty good job. Generation three, William's children, they actually enjoy the, the high-class, opulent life of society. You think like the great Gatsby, and that's their game, and they're just they're frittering it all away on parties and, and drink and just expensive, opulent life, luxury after luxury after luxury. And by the fourth generation, it's all gone. The entire fortune, it's, it's wasted. The homes are sold, they're trusted elsewhere, they're ruined, they're raised. Within 100 years, 100 years of Cornelius Vanderbilt's death, the Vanderbilt fortune entirely was gone. There is no trust fund. Look at, it just gives us an example of, of we don't have control on what happens to the yield of our work when we're gone. And that's why placing our identity in our work, because we don't get to take it with us and we don't, we don't know how it will be managed or used, it's vapor. It's empty. Another reason that the preacher gives here is that, that no matter how well you worked, you may be very industrious. You may be very smart. You may be like a master craftsman building the best in the world. 
the results of what your work is, whether that's the acquired wealth, the portfolio, or the legacy and the beauty of what you build, no matter what it is, somebody else gets the rewards of it. It goes to somebody else. This is what he says in verse 20. He says, so I turned and I gave up my heart to despair. He's like, he thinks, he just kind of looks inside and he's starting to think this through to its end conclusion. And he despairs of it. It just it feels so, so empty. I despaired over all the toils of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled, he's worked hard with wisdom and with knowledge and skill. I mean, so three of the highest virtues in employment and working class. Knowledge, wisdom, and skill. Expert laborer. Sometimes the person who toils that way puts in the hours, learns the craft, gets the degrees, all of that, that person must leave everything to be enjoyed by somebody who didn't earn or work for it. How vain, how foolish. He says, this is, this is a vanity and a great evil. He's depressed because all his work is so empty. This, this person, the preacher here, Solomon, he wasn't a slacker. He wasn't a lazy worker. He didn't just sit on his couch and, you know, fan me and eat grapes and just have a great life there. He was industrious. He bought the vision that if you are a hard worker, you will experience upward mobility. Uh, Solomon's dream was the American dream. And he was wise and knowledgeable. He put in the time. He worked 50, 60, 70-hour weeks. He got the degrees. He was in the education system. He, he was a master craftsman. And then he realizes, I work so hard for it all. I get to old age. I die. And I don't even really get to enjoy what I work so hard for. The next generation gets it. I have to leave it to somebody behind who didn't get the degrees, didn't spend the hours learning, didn't work on it, wasn't a skilled craftsman, they get to enjoy all the rewards, all the benefits of what I labored so hard for, and I get like this, zero. And consider that's, that's what happens in our lives. Just give me, let me just give you a scan of our lives here just for a moment. This will depress you probably, but we'll figure it out. From our birth until we're probably about, at least in American society, until we're about 25, what are we doing? We're growing up, we're going to school, we're being educated, we're maybe at some point along there, hopefully we're, pursuing, we're figuring out a skill set that we're, we're decent at and a career that we could lean into, and so we pursue that, we get a job, we, we, we begin to learn, and we get degrees and all that, and so the first 25 years of our lives, generally speaking... We're growing up, we're learning, we're being educated. Then right around 25, again, generally speaking, we're stepping into our careers. We're actually getting a job, we're out of school. Now we're working, we're, we're beginning a career. And we spend up until, for the most part, 65, and I know the retirement age is getting bumped out later and later, we work from 25 to 65. So you can just consider 40 years of your life working some job or another. There's your career. Maybe it's multiple careers. Maybe it's different things. But you are spending the lion's share, 40-plus years of your life in the labor force. And then when you hit that, that beautiful age of retirement, 65, 67, wherever it is and falls there, by, by average standards, I looked this up, the average lifespan of someone who lives in Michigan is 78 years old. 
from 65 to 78, we get 13 years. Oh, you think, oh, that's great. 13 years to enjoy my retirement. 13 years to enjoy all the hard work I did. Yeah, 13 years of your body starting to like decompose on you as it goes, your mind failing you, your energy completely expended. Who has time for this anymore? And, and I don't mean to be completely jaded in this, but we're probably not going to have as big portfolios of retirement as we think we will, and so our incomes are going to be rather fixed and rather limited, so it's not going to be a lot of wealth there for us to ride out the last 13 years of our life. Is that what you're excited about, the retirement? Those 13 years? And that's just average if you make it to 78. Some of us will, will go earlier. Will we really get to enjoy it? Will we? All that time working, all that time amassing, at the end of the day, so your stuff, whatever you worked hard for, that 40 years chunk of your life, yeah, all that goes to somebody else. They get to enjoy the fruit of your labor. Anybody here depressed at this moment? <laughs> Let's keep going. I mean, he just, he just brings it one step further for us. And here's what it is. We can't find our identity, our value in our work, in the secular dream, because thirdly, he says, our work stresses us out all the time. It's just the consuming stress of our lives. Look with me at verse 22 and 23. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? This is the same question he asked in chapter 1, verse 3. There it is again. What's the gain? What's the profit from all the toil and work that we have under the sun? Show me it. He says, for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Some of you should underline that and be like, yes, that's my job right now. It's just completely perplexing and tiring and vexing to me. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. So he says it's all vanity. I mean, way to sum up 25 to 65, right? I'm working all the time. I'm stressed out because of my work or because of relationships at work or because of my boss or, or because the product of demands are there, because the goals I've set have to come through or because I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to make enough money in sales this month. All of my work just stresses me out. It's vexing. And when I go to bed at night, I can't even sleep because of the heartburn and the turmoil and the stuff and the thoughts going on in my head about my work that keep me up at night. That's our lives. Thank you very much so exciting. That's why the preacher is dead on. It's all vanity. It's all meaningless. The number one thing that I hear when I, when I talk with all of you about, hey, what can I pray for? What's going on in your lives? The number one thing you as a church tell me, pray for me and my job. I'm stressed out. I think we're worshiping our work. And yet... And yet it stresses us out all the time. I mean, that, is, that, is that where you're going to find meaning in life, in a thing that just completely bowls you over day in and day out? That's the point of the preacher. When you make work your God, when you look to your career, your job, your production, even your wealth to give you meaning and value in life, you're looking to a surely empty, meaningless existence. It's all vanity. Back to Derek Thompson's article in The Atlantic. He quotes uh, another writer, Oren Koss, uh, who's the author of the book, The Once and Future Worker. Koss says, we created this idea that the meaning of life should be found in work. 
We tell young people that their work should be their passion. Don't give up until you find a job that you love, we say. You should be changing the world, we tell them. That's the message at commencement addresses, in pop culture, and frankly, in the media. Thompson says, but our desks were never meant to be our altars. The modern labor force evolved to serve the needs of consumers and capitalists, not to satisfy millions of people seeking transcendence at the office. It doesn't add up. So if you're a young person and you're hearing the commencement speakers, you're hearing the culture, you're hearing the world say, find that calling, YOLO, make your life your work. That's where meaning is. It's empty. It's empty. And if you're in the midlife crisis and you're struggling with that feeling of, hey, I realize it's empty, it's time to, to, time to come back to God, time to repent of your workism, time to, to lay down worshiping our, worship, or worshiping our work and seeking transcendence at the office and to say, no, that's not where meaning and purpose and value is found. The, conclu- the preacher's conclusion is like, okay, well, what's the point of all this? Here's what his conclusion is in verse 24. There is nothing better... There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil, period. As the preacher examines the secular dream, he's like, here's what the best of life has for here under the sun. He's looking at a life without God, a life of the secular dream, and he says, here's the best thing you can hope to and expect to have. So I just want to say to you, if you want to live out the secular dream, here's here's what it is. Eat the best food you can, like go for the best steaks, drink the best drinks you can, enjoy the finest the world has to offer, and, and at least get a job that you actually like. I mean, don't spend your life working for something you don't enjoy. That's the best life for anyone apart from God. Good food, good drink, and a job you actually like. Period. There's your best life now. Is that what you want? Is that what God has for us? And he even recognizes, he says, this is from the hand of God. And, and here's the turn for us. Here's, here's the sea. Here's the thing for us to see. If we're going to look at the secular dream, we're going to come up and say it's empty. Workism, worshiping our work, it, it doesn't yield what we want. So let's put God back in the picture. Let's not live out the secular dream, but let's live a life with God in our sights with God in our eyes, with God in our lives and in our work. And what does that mean we see of God? That means we see the reality that God is one who graciously gives. God is the one who gives of himself. He gives of what we need. He gives of all that we have for his glory and for our good and for enjoyment. This is what the, the preacher recognizes. He says, this I also saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or drink or have any enjoyment? He's like, the best the world offers, the best a secular dream offers is eat good food, drink good wine, and have a job you enjoy. But ultimately, even that's from God's hand. Because you can't really enjoy it. You can't really celebrate it. You can't really be satisfied with it apart from God's giving it of, it of it to us. This is what theologians call God's common grace. To the sinner and to the righteous alike, God gives us good food, good drink, 
things to do that we actually might like. So there it is. All of us can enjoy that, but we have to see that apart from God, we really won't enjoy it. Who can enjoy this apart from him? God is the gracious giver who gives of himself. God's hand is the one giving what we need. And so if you despair of your job, if you despair of the meaning of your life as you've looked through it from your job, let me again call you to put God, put him in your sight, put him in your life, put him in your work, and see that he graciously gives so that our work has greater meaning than just life under the sun. He says this, for to the one who pleases him, to the one who pleases God, God has given. So there's God again, this gracious giver. To the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. These are, these are things that we desire in our lives. We desire to be wise. We should desire to, to have knowledge of him and the world. And all of us yearn for joy. All of us yearn for that deep reality of satisfaction. To the one who pleases God, God gives these things. But to the sinner, God has given the business of gathering and collecting. So it's just a a vain cycle of life only to end up that the righteous get what they've worked so hard for. Only to give to the one who pleases God. And this is why life lived under the sun, life in the secular dream, life without God, worshiping our work is vanity and a striving after wind. God gives us what we need, and so we, he calls us here, the, the preacher calls us here to be people who just strive after pleasing God, to know him. Now, you might ask, well, what does that look like? What does that, what does that mean in our lives? And so I want to take us to another preacher, another wise sage, and his sermon about where our work and life really finds itself. And the truth is this, that God gives his people all they need for life as they pursue his kingdom. God gives his people all they need for life as they pursue his kingdom. So this other preacher, his name is Jesus, by the way. His sermon, his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, the nations, seek all those things. That's the secular dream. That's the American dream. Pursue it so you have... Everything you need for good food, good drink, good clothing, great job. The Gentiles seek after all those things. And guess what? Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Life with God in the picture acknowledges that he is omniscient. He knows everything, and he knows exactly what you need. He knows you need food. He knows you need drink. He knows you need productivity in a job. He's not ignorant to those realities, but as the good giver, he knows these things. He knows that you need them all. And so Jesus says, here's how we live life with God in the picture. Here's how we live life with him in our realities under the sun. We seek first the kingdom of God, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. You don't have to be anxious about this stuff. You seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and this stuff will be taken care of. God, the gracious giver, supplies what we need. Jesus takes our workism, our worship of our work, and he really boils it down. It's pursuits of security. It's pursuits of power and wealth and influence and identity. And the nations, the secular world, pursues all those things. But your father knows you need them. And so he calls us. He calls us and he says, seek first my kingdom. Now, I don't want you to hear me this morning and go, oh, pastor said, like, I can quit my job. I can just 
stop my work and just like go live it out however I want. No, the scriptures are pretty clear. They're very clear. We're called to work. Paul told the Thessalonians, he said, if anyone's not willing to work, don't let them eat. And he says, we hear that some of you are walking in idleness. You're not busy at work, but you're busy bodies. And he says, we command and encourage such people in the Lord Jesus to get a job and to work quietly and earn their own living. It's a Christian ethic for us to work. It's right for us to do that. But we put our work in subordination to seeking the kingdom of God. We put our work in congruence with seeking the kingdom of God. We seek the kingdom of God first and foremost as we work. And so we look for the good of our neighbors. We look for the good of our coworkers. We seek to be industrious people for the glory of God. Some of you are in positions where you are developing and working in, in advances in technology. And these advances of technology are for the betterment of society, for the glory of God. Some of you are working in education and medicine, and these are places for you to work for the glory of God and the betterment of your fellow human beings, image bearers. Some of you are working in, in places of communication and sales, and you are there to work for the glory of God, for the kingdom of God, for the advance of his name, and for the betterment of society. Not to worship your work, but to worship the God that you work for. That you do everything for his name, giving thanks to him. Seeking first the kingdom of God says, I'm going to my work to glorify God, to love others, and to honor him in all that I do. Seeking his righteousness means embracing the gospel that Jesus came and worked on your behalf. He did the works that you could not do and I will not do. And he died working for us so that we would be reconciled to God through his cross. Seeking first the kingdom of God means that we gather, or it means that we don't just worship him one hour a week, but in all of the everyday things of life, in our work, in our parenting, in our jobs, in our dating, in our leisure, in every aspect of our lives, we seek first his kingdom and we worship him through it. We seek to live lives that are holy and distinct from the righteousness of Christ, displaying the righteousness of Christ and the ethic of the gospel to all peoples. We pursue righteousness and justice and mercy and humility and grace. Seeking first the kingdom of God means that we make decisions about our careers and jobs that deal with the kingdom of God first not just getting the next promotion or the higher salary, but we subordinate all that we are to the kingdom of God, to Christ. And in community together, we, we seek to make God's name and his glory known. Now, again, I'm not saying every one of us should quit our jobs. You, you might be hearing me and saying, well, okay, the idea is to quit my job and go be a missionary on the field and, and serve there. I'm not saying you should do that, although maybe some of you should. It does mean that we stop worshiping the idol of our work. We repent of idolizing our careers and our callings, and letting our work call the shots for the ultimate purpose of our lives. And we become people like our God. As God graciously, generously gives us all things, your Father in heaven knows what you need, so we become people who serve and give. We, we image him in the world. So one of the ways you can do that is to serve, serve with us and a ministry team at Woodside. After the service, there'll be ministry team leaders out in the, um, 
in the patio there. They'd love to connect you, our security team, our hospital, hospitality team, our worship team, our kids team. We'd like to open 11 o'clock uh, kids ministry services so you can be a part of that. Go connect with one of those leaders. Find a place to serve. Use your time. Use your, use your gifting. Give yourself in the way that God gives you. Seek first the kingdom of God. You can fill out the communication card and just write, hey, I'd like to serve, and maybe a place that you'd like to serve in ministry here at the church, and just drop that in the offering basket, and we'll, we'll help you connect to a team. But, but what we want you to see is that as God redefines the purpose of our life around him, he calls us to follow him in serving as well. We come to God in Christ, and we say, my life is yours. I want to pursue and enjoy you in everything, so lead me. Here's the point. Let me just land the plane on this sermon. The secular dream tells us that our industry, our workism, our worship of our work, that's what gives us value and meaning. But it's a lie. Hear it for the lie that it is. It's empty. It's vain. But God, the giver, gives us purpose and meaning, and he calls us to him. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all will be added to you. So friends, will you, will you repent of your worship of your work? Will you, will you make the kingdom of God and his righteousness the greatest pursuit and passion of your life? Will you pursue the righteousness that Jesus gives through his grace and identify with his purposes and meaning? The blessing is there for those who will. You will be satisfied in God forever. So if I can use the popular phrase of Pastor John Piper, don't waste your life. Find the meaning that God gives you in his name, in his kingdom, in his work. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your better work for us. You died giving us the results of your work. We foolish and wayward people don't deserve it, but you have loved us, and your work is credited to us as righteousness. So, Lord, this morning, may we repent of our own efforts at earning meaning and value. May we lay those aside. May we cease worshiping our work, expose it for the idol that it is. And may we come to you, receive your grace, and be people of service, mercy, and love for your glory, for the good of all peoples. We thank you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.